Berry. Welcome! Did you hear me that time, Barry? I, I heard it. Okay. To episode 295 of Breaking Kayfabe with Baldrin and or Barry. Barry, we call this one the Chit Chat episode. Oh! Ask, ask me why. Why are we calling this, Jeff? Why are we calling this the Chit Chat episode? Well, because we do a lot of chit chatting on this particular oh. show. Besides the regular dissertation between Lord Barrons and myself talking about uh, all different things out there. We are going to be featuring as our match of the week, going back to February 10th, 1979, to a slightly, very only slightly, bloody ring in Minnesota. It is Vern Gagne taking on Nick Bockwinkle for the AWA World Championship. And joining us for that discussion from the College of Wrestling Knowledge, Barry Rose, it is AWA historian George Shire. Oh, People great. love when we have George on because George, you know, he's one of those guys you wind him up, let him go, bada boom, bada bing. We got some uh, severe knowledge that we're being uh, handed out here. Besides all that, because it is the Chit Chat episode, Fonzie, Bill Alfonso is going to be joining us because Barry Rose, we in fact, oh, am I correct in saying that mere days away is the CWF Legends Fan Fest number 27? Uh, I don't know, maybe 27. I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, from the beautiful residence in Mar- uh, uh, Suncoast Highway off of interstates, I don't know what, uh, Barry, Suncoast Highway, uh, please fill the folks in. So, <laughs> so does this episode air before Fan Fest yes. or after? It does. Okay. Because even I'm even a little, we've been doing so much recording lately. I'm super confused. But That's uh, pretty much a standard state at, the, at your age. Well, it is. It's, you know, as I start to round that big six zero coming up in uh, about six months. Yeah, things are a little. But look, if this episode's dropping on Tuesday, we're just really four days away from a big fan fest. So you got your big wrestling card going to take place the night before on Friday night. Also, a Q&A with Nord the Barbarian taking place in ring. The fans who were at the last Fan Fest were witness to Jimmy Garvin doing a 60-minute Q&A in the ring. They also saw Tokyo Monster Cahagas beat the shit out of somebody like like we have never seen, Jeff, where you and I looked at each other and go, that's a shoot, right? Like, we're sitting five feet from the I think the what ring. I said was, he's getting slightly stiff uh, in the ring. Uh, you know, well, yeah. Oh, he was, he was destroying the kid. Well, the good news, Cahagas is back, and he will be performing. We were kind of, all of us were so taken with him at the last one that uh, they put Cahagas in the main event, so excited. But Saturday, Jeff, it's a big deal. You got Baron Von Raschke on top. He will be doing a Q&A with Cater Dinner. Jeff, do we know anyone who will be doing the moderation of that Q&A? Is it David Pence? No. No. No, no he doesn't do anything at a fan fest. So. Is, is it is it Jamie Ward? No, it's not. Uh, uh, Dave Flair? Uh, no, it's not. Is it me? Is it I think me? it's you. I think it's okay. you. Okay. Well, well, you've already got this personal relationship with Baron. Having dined with him previously, seems like a natural to put you right back in that spot. Also have, as the, the, I just mentioned, Nord the Barbarian will be there. The Glamour Girls, Judy Martin, Leilani Kai, Gary Michael Capetta, Barry Horowitz, Bill Alfonso, uh, Tokyo Monster Cahagas will be there as well. Cuban Assassin will be there. And, you know, I, I think I've mentioned this a couple of times, and I had a conversation with both of these guys this past week, but we're opening up the last Fan Fest, and this seems like the most apropos way to do it. 
Excellent use of the word apropos, Barry. I've been trying to squeeze that in for 295 episodes. That's opposed yeah. to what you usually try to squeeze out, but that's another ah, thing. Well, that's yeah. it. Minor health issue. Minor health issue. Yeah, but uh, 50 years of friendship, a 60-minute Q&A with best friends Steve Kern and Jerry Briscoe. These guys are going to talk about uh, life in the ring, life outside the ring, they're going to also discuss uh, working at the Super Bowl and then working against each other. There was that little-known program that occurred in 1978, Briscoe Brothers against Kern and Graham, and that went on for several months. It was fantastic. And I couple, tell you, a couple of pretty good teams were they, Barry? Pretty good. I have said this, and I would look. I go on record, and if I go on record, it's one of two things: I either truly believe it, or I'm trolling for someone to fuck with me. And right now, Jeff, I truly believe it. Florida, in the mid '70s, had the best tag team wrestling in the country. You had Graham and Kern. You had the Briscoe brothers. You had Ivan Koloff and Pat Patterson which transitioned into Ivan Koloff and Mr. Saito, which transitioned into Saito and Sato. So really with any of these teams, it was out of control. But, you know, it is it is apropos in the fact that this is our last event coming up. We have had 10. I may return in some form down the road, but it, it won't be just like this. And these fan fests, for the most part, were strictly devoted to CWF, closing it out where I get to moderate an hour Q&A in reflection on CWF with Jerry Briscoe and Steve Kern is like winning the world's heavyweight title to me. So it's a big deal. I am most excited for that. I know you're excited for Von Raschke. We were just talking about questions off air, what to ask him and what not to ask him, which is exciting. Uh, and then Gary Michael Capetta, World-famous ring announcer. We had him on the show, what's five, six weeks ago. He will be closing out the day, our last-ever after-party guest, Gary Michael Capetta, telling tales, telling stories, and answering your questions. For That's right. That's right. You. You out there. He's going to answer your questions. Don't sit there with your uh, hands on your uh, uh, seat of your pants. Raise your hand. Say, hey, I got a question for Gary Michael Capetta. Because we've got some people, I'm not going to throw out any names, throw shade anybody's way, but we have people that go there that aren't really participating in the Q&A session. What? Do you want want to throw someone's name out? Because I'll throw someone's name out. I'll throw out all the names of people in the audience. I'll throw out, first off, let's talk about people that feel the need whenever it's – when you – and I love this because I I watched every moment of the last Q&A with Magnum T.A., but you would say, does anyone have a question? And there was one guy in the audience that raised his hand every single time and didn't always have questions. That was the best part. A lot of those were statements, but you know exactly who I'm talking about. Who is not asking questions and just staring dead-eyed towards the front? Do you want to name names? <laughs> I, <laughs> give me a hint and I'll, I'll okay, lay it out. Right, I can tell you right now, if anyone's listening to this episode that's going to the fan fest, I'm sure we got uh, a few people going, oh, God, I hope he doesn't fucking mention my name. On that note, Barry, one of the people that you did, I don't think you did mention that this guy is going to be making an appearance at the fan fest. It's Bill Alfonso. Great Bill Alfonso. Our old friend Fonzie. And we had a chance to talk to Fonzie. Lou, why don't you take us to that interview with Bill Alfonso about his upcoming appearance at CWF Legends Fan Fest. So, you know, Barry, last week uh, we dedicated our episode to the passing 
of the legendary superstar Billy Graham. A uh, lot of thoughts, a lot of uh, comments about his career. And we, what we wanted to do is we wanted to reach out to uh, people that knew him, that appreciated him uh, back in the day. And so, Barry, we're very happy to be joined uh, by old friend of the show, Bill Alfonso Fonzi. Welcome, my man. Hey, guys. Congratulations on what you guys are doing, especially the Fan Fest coming up. And yes, of course, I'm, I'm so happy to be on your show. And Superstar Billy Graham was a big part of me growing up. You well, know, that's kind of where I wanted I wanted to start, Fonzie. Uh, as a young kid, before you got into the business, when was the first chance that you had to see Superstar Billy Graham? Was it in Florida? Or was it somewhere else or what? In magazines. In magazines. Because, you know, it was the Northeast events and all that. So how we got all our info was through the wrestling magazine. And when I met him in the early 80s, he came into Florida, Florida Championship Wrestling. That's the first time I met him to come work with us for six months or eight months or whatever it was. Uh, very cool. Very cool. So I knew all about him, and he was a big deal. You hear Hulk Hogan, all, all these guys, Rick Flair, they they copied fucking superstar Billy Graham. He was the premier guy. You know, he was the first big guy with those big 22-inch pythons and all that stuff. And, uh, so it was really cool to finally meet him. And then after a few months of meeting him and working with him and riding with him, you know, we were West Palm on Monday, Tampa Tuesday, Miami, a Lauderdale Wednesday, Thursday, Jacksonville, Friday and Saturday spot shows in Sunday, Orlando. Then we started riding together. And then he became normal, like all of us. We're all normal people. But, you know, uh, it took me a few months to, you know, realize he was just like us, you know. And that's interesting too, because I, you know, and I, I, Jeff and I have talked about that, uh, as kids and we would sit in the, the front row and we would watch everybody that was larger than life as we've got to talk right? to them. They're normal, just like us, right? They're just the yes. average people. But what, exactly. were you, were you starstruck though? I mean, cause Billy Graham yeah, and. Yeah, yeah, there was a great was description Star-Tuck. this past week, and it was uh, our old friend Howard Baum. And what did he call him? Like a psychedelic Godzilla? Was that yes, it, Yes, absolutely. And That's what he a good description. Yeah, what, what he said, Fonzie, was he said seeing superstar Billy Graham in his prime was like trying to explain the color fuchsia to a blind person. You know, it was just. Well, Billy Graham was our Muhammad Ali in the wrestling business for a while. You know, yeah, that's a very good comparison. Yeah, I would say, and then, and then of course, uh, the Hogan's and the uh, Macho Men's and all of them came after, but he was the premier guy in the business. Him and Bruno San Martino. There's only two or three big names like that that stood out. Uh, of course, the Sheik Sabu's uncle and uh, Bobo Brazil. I got to work with all those guys on my. When I broke in in 1978, finally got a Florida contract with Gordon Soley and Eddie Graham, May in 1980, these guys I worked with, I got to work with Bobo Brazil. He was on his last couple of years in the business. So I met these old timers that I was a childhood fucking freak watching these guys at 12 years old and magazines and, you know, talking and all that kind of stuff. It's unbelievable to guys that I've met on the tail end of their career. I was so lucky to the Sheik and Bobo Brazil and all these guys. Uh, incredible. Eddie Graham and my goodness, the list goes on and on. But Superstar did stick out. I was starstruck as hell when I met him. And we ended up riding together. He was a cool guy. I don't think he, 
I don't remember him drinking or doing any drugs besides the steroids. And he used to do promos. Hey, Daddy, I'm taking the best dying of all in the business. You did. Fuck, I've seen him do promos and shit. Uh, in fact, I have some footage that I'm refereeing. I'll send it to you, Barry. He's beating up Scott McGee at 106 North Albany, where we tape TV for Florida Wrestling. Uh, it's a short thing. Uh, oh, was, this was a, another name that can go along with superstar Billy Graham. Abdullah the Butcher, he's 82 years old, and he was doing a signing at the show I did yesterday in Cleveland. Wow. 82 and years what, old. Uh, what kind of shape? I mean, he's 82. Is he, uh, is he, he was in okay shape? He then? was in a wheelchair. He was in a wheelchair. Oh. He lost weight because he was, uh, I'm just going to throw out a figure. He was 450 at one time when he was big. And I'd say he weighed about 200 pounds in a wheelchair, big around the belly, like kind of he used to look. Uh, his face looks good, big smile. His mind is sharp as a fucking tack. As soon as you see me, I had to go over to him. He's in a wheelchair. He hugged and kissed me. And my Fonzie, we talked about, you know, when he came and did the loop. Like in Florida, Andre the Giant would come in for the week and do the loop. Then Fabulous Moolah would come in for the week and do the loop. Uh, the Midnight would come in for the week and do the loop. Uh, uh, you know, certain superstars. So, and Abby was one of them. And of course, as a referee for Florida Championship Wrestling, it was kind of my job to take care of these guys until they got settled in. So, I would, uh, after Tuesday night at the Fort Homer History Armory, the superstar Billy Graham's on the car. I'm working with Abdullah. And I take Abdullah to uh, a place called the Ace Lounge. It was a black lounge, but a real classy place. The fucking, uh, he took me in there for a fucking cocktail. I'm the only little white kid in there. I'm 21 years old. <laughs> fucking cool as shit, you know? And then stopping at, at a gas station was, now Superstar still looked good. When he was here in the 80s, he, he was a little older. You know, he wasn't in his prime, but he was fucking little. He still had the big guns and shit and the, and the long hair. And the, so we would, travel together and anywhere we stopped people would fucking stare you know oh my god they know him you know there's only a couple names like my my wife's a nurse and they uh, around christmas time we'd go to a party and it's the her doctor friends her nurse friends they're having a party and i don't i fit in like a fucking oddball uh so the doctor would ask me oh well what do you do for a living uh Bunzi? I say, oh, I'm in sports entertainment. And they say, what's that? And I say one word, Hulk Hogan, the biggest name in the business. Nobody's got a bigger name than Hulk Hogan. So then they get it. And then we start talking. And then they say, oh, when I was a kid in Superstar Billy Graham and Bobo Brazil. And I said, I got to work with all those guys. And I'll show a pic. So it's amazing uh, how big Superstar Billy Graham was and how cool of a guy he was, man. So let me just ask you, when when you said the first time you saw him, was that when he came in and was working with Sullivan? Correct. Okay, yeah. So he came in, and they didn't. He came in, and then they eventually put him with Sullivan pretty quick. But he came in as superstar Billy Graham as a single, you know, a big main event guy by himself. Then he went to the dark side and got the went with Kevin in that posse. And Barry, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Did he not? Was he not one of the guys that got a shot at Kerry Von Erich when Kerry is the world champion came through he, CWF? He absolutely did. It was, uh, geez, I want to say it was superstar Billy Graham, Mike Rotundo, I think even Black Bart. Fonzie, did you referee some of those of matches? Of course when, I did. 
Well, so you I were there when Kerry Von Erich came in as champion. Brother, from 1980, I refereed every fucking main event. I was their senior, the best referee. They, they they loved me, and I would, of course I would do all these important matches: Ric Flair, Barry Windham, Dusty, and Harley Race, Andre, and this guy. All the world title matches, sixty minute Broadways. That's uh, Lou. That's when they go to uh, we wrestle for one hour. They call it a Broadway. And Barry, you know the one oh. thing they always said about Bill Alfonso. He called they it say, right down the middle. That's what they said about Bill Alfonso, right down the middle. That's what so, my gimmick came up in ECW. <laughs> uh, I, hey, Paul Heyman called me one day. Now, remember, I worked for Florida Championship Wrestling. From there, I went to WCW Ted Turner. From there, I went to WWF Vince McMahon WrestleManias and stuff. So I've only worked for these big fucking huge companies. So Paul Heyman calls me up. And then he says, hey, Ponzi, I'm friends with Paul. He kind of started in the 80s with me. Uh, I've been friends with him for years. He says, hey, I got this company called ECW. I said, what the fuck's an ECW? I don't know any, you know. He said, oh, we got this little company. We want to bring you in for four weeks and choke slam you as a referee gimmick. And my gimmick got over, and he turned me into a manager, and I ended up staying there five years. Uh, it was great. Had a great time. So I start. That's where, hey, daddy. I was meeting so many people, I couldn't remember all these young kids' names. I didn't know anybody in ECW. I walk in there, Stanman, Tommy Dreamer, Taz. Who the fuck are these guys? I just worked with Hulk Hogan and Macho Man and uh, Razor Ramon and all these big Steiner, all these big names. Uh, so I started calling them, hey, daddy, because I didn't know their names. So that's how that got stuck. And then I would call it right down the middle. That's how that got started, too, in ECW. And, but back to the superstar Billy Graham, man. I'm fucking sorry that he passed, but he passed at almost 80 years old. That's old for a wrestler. We die young, don't we, Abs- Barry? Yeah, absolutely. We, so, we have a short lifespan for some reason. So, you know. So, Barry, uh, as a matter of fact, I think there's something that uh, you may have recently announced on our uh, Breaking Cafe with Bowder and Barry message board. But for those who do not know, we have something to tell the folks that are coming to the Fan Fest about Bill Alfonso, don't we? I guess we got some breaking news here. We're breaking Dave. How exciting. But uh, look, Bill has literally been a brother to us since day one when we started doing our Fan Fest. And I think, Bill, you've been to five or six of these, if not even more. And uh, it. You know, if Thank we're going to do one too. last of, absolutely. But if we're doing one last event, I had to also look at who are the most popular guests we've ever had. Steve Kern is a name that comes to mind. I think Steve's been there five, six times and usually has. Yeah. And his lines are always super long. The second most requested name that comes to mind, Bill Alfonso. People are like, is Bill going to be there? Is Bill going to be there? That's the impression that you make on people. All the, all the last big uh, legends. Fan Fest, Saturday, June 3rd, right here in Tampa Bay, Daddy. Baird Von Roski, John North, Steve Kern, Gerald Briscoe, and the list goes on and on. I'm going to promise you guys some really cool-ass, framed-up, beautiful pictures of all the... I, I got some really nice stuff to bring, presentation. I have some great pictures for you guys. I'm super excited to see everybody. When you look at the lineup of talent, Jeff, and this is the biggest event we have ever had, big as far as the amount of talent. Obviously, Bill Alfonso was there, Baron Von Raschke making a very rare Florida appearance, 
Nord the Barbarian, Jerry Briscoe, Steve Kern, the Glamour Girls, Leilani Kai, and Judy Oh, my God, Martin. yeah, Judy. I worked with those guys when the Moolah in the 80s. Judy, yep. oh, my God, I worked with those guys in the 80s. A guy that you know extremely well, Bill, the Cuban assassin, will be there? Well, he's one of my best friends. In fact, we went as brothers in the wrestling business, and we grew up together. We went to the first show at the Armory together. My dad got comp tickets. Uh, from the sports editor, Frank Klein of the Tampa newspaper. They used to come up on tickets and my dad came home with two tickets as wrestling. What's that? So, but, so me and Dave went and we fell in love with the business that night. I was about 13 years old. That's I awesome. wanted to be a superstar Billy Graham, but I grew up to be 165 pounds. So I got lucky <laughs> to fit right in as a referee. So wait a minute. are you saying that you couldn't have started doing the Deanna ball and got up to that size? Is that what you're trying to tell us? Boy. Uh, I don't think I could have been that big. They're fucking 12 inches now, though. <laughs> and just the last two names, uh, another guy that you know extremely well, Barry Horowitz, will be there. And yep. our last guest, Gary Michael Capetta. So 11 names. I love big... Gary Michael Capetta. What He's a great. great. Announcer. Yeah, when you have, what a great time. Tampa connection we have here also, Bill. Oh, man, I'm super excited for the show. I'm super excited. Uh, hey, I'm in Miami that night, so I'm not cutting the people short. I'm there. I'm saying the whole freaking thing. My presentation is going to be beautiful. I can't wait to see the, the fans uh, that love us so much and give back. I do have a show in Miami that night, so as soon as the event um, is over, I'm jumping in the car and driving 297 miles to the show, do a show, and come right back wow. that night. But, you know, I've this is impossible for me to miss the last fan fest. In fact, I called Barry and said, hey, Barry, uh, is there any way I can fit in on the last one? It's super important to me. And he said, of course, Fonzie, we've been thinking about you. So and now I got a beautiful spot. And I'm so happy to be there, guys. Well, and well, I'm let's be, be, let's be honest, Barry. About Dave, Dave Penzer has an open checkbook to whenever somebody, uh, you know, that's, that's one of our friends wants to come to the fan fest. Dave Penzer says money is no object. <laughs> that's his new name. It's I not cash money. Penzer. Dave Penzer it's money is no object. Dave Penzer. That's what we if call. He said that he's my best friend. But if he did say that, he's still a hell of a guy. And I love David. I've been working with him for years. He's been around for years and a hell of a cool guy. So, hey, well, assholes don't last. Assholes in this business don't last. They're gone. You got to be cool to maintain like superstar Billy Graham. Look in the business for 40 something or 50 years or whatever. Uh, look at Abdul and still making appearances. My goodness. Look at Fonzie. I'll be 66 August 11th. Same birthday as Hulk Hogan. I'm still, I'm working every night. Uh, once a week, I'm working either Friday or Saturday all over the country. I just got back from Fargo, North Dakota, St. Louis. I'm in Washington, DC Friday, then Saturday. And Sunday, I'm in Miami doing the Florida wrestling. They're doing the rebirth of that. I'm interested to see how it goes, and I'm going to be refereeing for that. So I'm what I'm saying is I'm booking. I'm, you know, they still want to see us. I'm still relevant in the business today. I can't believe it. Well, I can tell you where they do want to see you, Fonzie, and that's June 3rd, uh, CWF Legends Fan Fest in beautiful downtown Lutz, Florida. Barry Rose, am I correct? You are correct. We will be there. We'll be there all day. Doors opening up. Uh, if you've got the ultra ticket, doors open up at 11 o'clock, which will be the Q&A 
50 Years of Friendship. Steve Kern and Jerry Briscoe going to talk about being great friends over the last 50 years, wrestling each other, wrestling as a team, and a lot of their adventures all over the wrestling world. General public, the doors will open up at 12 o'clock. You can meet Bill Alfonso beginning at 12 o'clock, June the 3rd, at the Residence Inn, Marriott Residence Inn in Lutz. North Point Village on the cold. I don't know, Jeff. That residence in something. I don't know, but it's uh, the longest title in the history of names. Uh, but anyways, we love the hotel. We love our event. We are so excited. We're so excited. Fonzie's going to be there because if not, there's about five people listening to this show that would have kicked my ass personally because they're like, <laughs> you got to have Fonzie. You got to got, you got to have Fonzie. That's true. And the guy's name is Benji. And Benji's listening to this, and I'm going to, uh, I'll introduce you hey, to him. Benji, he's like, Benji. you're like, you got to have, you got to have Fonzie. So I'm really glad that we were able to get Bill there. And Bill, June the 3rd, we're just, a, just a really a few days away at this point. Um, so, well, listen, Fonzie, uh, as we yeah. wrap up this segment, one last thing I want to ask you just in, in closing. Yes, yes, uh, since we, we wanted to speak to you about superstar Billy Graham, I want to close with, uh, maybe a last thought from you on, uh, the legacy of uh, superstar Billy Graham, your friend, and what he meant to the business of pro wrestling. Well, it's hard to say what he meant to the business in just a minute or so, but um, everybody looked up to him. He was the first big superstar with that big body. He entertained probably millions of people, millions live, you know, combine all the shows you've done from Madison Square to Tokyo Dome in Tokyo, which I got to work to. Superstar meant the world to a lot of us, and it was a big, big loss. And uh, I think he's a national treasure, uh, Superstar Billy Graham. Like Hulk Hogan's our national treasure, so so is Superstar Billy Graham. And I miss him already, and I I haven't seen him in quite a while because he's been ill. But my, my thoughts and prayers are with him. What would you say, would you say, Bill, uh, just one last thought, was he really like the first cool heel? I couldn't have said it better myself. He was one of the first characters. You know, we become characters in ECW. I was a kind of a bad guy and they, people hated me, but I was doing my job and then I'm beloved as a character. Yes, he was a, I'd say the first cool character, you know. That's fucking great to say that. Yes, he was very cool, and it carried in on TV. It carried. He was he was superstar Billy Graham in the dressing room. You know, he's always superstar Billy Graham. Uh, damn it, man, we lost we lost the national treasure. Very time to talk a little match of the week this week, and if we're going to talk about an AWA match from the past, Barry, it's always a good time to have, as I call him, Uncle George. George Shire joining us today. George, welcome to Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. Excited to be back, guys. I love it. Love your show. Barry, you ready to talk a little, uh, little AWA stuff? Yeah, too. And this is, I think we should, we should actually recognize George as well is as we get ready to wrap up, you know, at our 300th episode and George, you and I were talking about this off air. 300 episodes, we have never missed a week. We have never put on a best of. We had delivered for 300 weeks new content. I want to say that every episode was a home run and that I never phoned it in. That might be stretching the truth a little bit. But with that, George, when Jeff and I were talking, we were 
basically making a list of things we wanted in our last few episodes. And right at the very top of the list was one more appearance from George Shire. So, George, thank you. Wow. I'm going to have to write out a check to you guys. Let me make Please. a note of that. That's B-O-W-D-R. <laughs> yeah. Subscribe and, to the and, Patreon. Yeah, yeah exactly. and it would probably B-O-U-N-C-E. <laughs> <laughs> It's actually B-U-L-L-S-H-I-T. So uh, <laughs> anyway, the match that we're talking about this week, uh, George, near and dear to your heart from February 10th, 1979. It is Vern Gagne taking on Nick Bockwinkle. Uh, George, you've had a chance to watch this match. First question that I have for you, George, where did this match take place? Was this in Minneapolis or what? Well, as Barry and I discussed the other day very briefly, I'm going to say yes. Definitely, it was a Minneapolis match. Okay, and the second question I have is, what the hell was going on with the mat? Because I don't know if they did some sort of, like, uh, you know, bloodletting, but, man, that it looked like the Portland match, uh, Matt. That's that's all I'm going to say. It was not uh, properly swabbed and cleaned before this world title match. <laughs> well, I'd have to go back and look at what match was, was probably before it, um, I don't know. I, I guess I wouldn't have been happy if I'd have had to get into the ring as the referee or Nick or Vern or whoever. Yeah, and uh, Jeff, I just want to say we don't use the word swabbed uh, <laughs> on the podcast often enough. That, that I love that word swabbed. And what Jeff's really referring to, and it was funny because we both were talking about this in a conversation, is if you look at the match and the ending of the match without giving anything away is Bobby Heenan getting run into a turnbuckle and he just bleeds gushers. But even before that, this match, and as he said, Portland is probably pretty good, maybe West Texas too. This match is just covered in blood. It's everywhere. But I, uh, you know, I, this was a, a good match. And I think, you know, the Vern thing to me is really interesting. I, I know that he owned the promotion. He was the guy making the decisions. But from an outsider in the ring, he's still really super credible even at this stage. And, you know, I bring up a guy and there's I think there's a physical resemblance between Vern Gagne and Killer Carl Cox. And, Jeff, this being episode 295, 296. Hit it, Barry. Yeah, you know it. I love Cox. I just, I, uh, you know, we, we got to wrap it up. And, uh, that's since day one, you've loved Cox. That's anyway. true. And, and you Ooh. know, like the, the killer was a big favorite. And but, your problems uh, are all behind you, as George once said. Well, yes, they, yes, they are. And I managed to bring that full circle. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, Welcome to high school, George. We're, we're right back. And, uh, we're yeah, right, right there, right there. We are. But it is, uh, you know, watching this match, first off, Nick Bockwinkle, and I, you know, I'll break no new ground. We have said this multiple times. Easily one of the greatest, could have been a world champion in the NWA, and I think would have been a great world's champion for the NWA. Uh, just it personified everything about it. But I really liked this match and the fact the way that these two work together. And I realize there's a history there. How many times... Do you think maybe guys like Bachwinkle and Ganya work together? And with that, in the AWA, who would have worked against each other the most? And the reason I bring it up, I was just having this discussion regarding wrestling in the state of Florida, and we kind of determined that uh, women wrestlers Sherry Lee and Bonnie Watson 
probably wrestled each other more than anybody else did in the state of Florida because for 12, 13 years, they were working together constantly. You know, you had Bobo Brazil in the Sheik, right? They must have worked together hundreds of times. Yeah. What about in the AWA? Who do you, does that belong to Bachwinkle and Ganya or no? Um, no, actually, I, I wouldn't give it to Bachwinkle and Ganya, though it, they might be second. Um, Nick's primary opponent from challenger days to championship days, and even after he wasn't champion, uh, I think goes to Billy Robinson. They, they literally, and I'll tell you what, I think I saw Nick and Billy wrestle. I had to see him wrestle at least 50, 60 times just within the short travels that I would do. I never saw the same match. I always saw new things and I saw two guys that totally could make it so believable, so real. And Nick did so good. This is where Nick excelled. He knew how to make himself look like he could be beat. And that's a skill. And Nick told me one time, you know, Robinson had the history where guys didn't want to work with him. A lot of guys did not want to work with Billy. Or they'd say, oh, God, I got to go against Robinson. Come on. And Billy was such uh, a temperamental individual where if he didn't think you uh, respected him or or you weren't giving him credit for being Billy Robinson, he wouldn't work with you. And he would make you look like an idiot or he would hurt you. And, that, and that's sad, but that's the way Billy was. And so I said to Nick one time, I said, you know, all these guys that don't want to work with Billy or have problems working with him, I said, how did you do it so many times? And Nick said, I go into the locker room the night of the match. And he said, I go up to him, I say, William, what do you want to do tonight? And he said it was that simple, that I gave him control, and Billy would work with me, and we had classic matches. And they did. And to his credit, Billy gave Nick the kudos to be as good as he was. Because if Nick, if, if Billy didn't want Nick to look good, he would have made him look like a clown. And Nick had the ability to look good, but also work with Billy and make it real. So I think it goes to Billy. Next, next Billy and Vern, or, uh, Nick and Vern. But you know, we, you mentioned the Sheik and Brazil and these guys that wrestled nine million times. I think if you look at the sixties, I think Vern Gagne and Mad Dog Vashon, I mean, they just wrestled each other over and over and over and over. And everyone was, you wanted to see it again. And that's what, finally led to when Mad Dog and Vern buried the hatchet in the late 70s and became a tag team. Oh, my God, how does this happen? You know, when Vern picked the dog to be his partner against Stevens and Patterson, that's how it came about. In fact, Robinson was Vern's regular partner, and he was injured. And Vern said, I got to find somebody that can fight dirty like Nick or like Ray and Pat, and I'm going to get a partner. And then, the, you know, who who is he going to get? Oh, my God. Well, when he announces to the dog or that it's going to be the dog, it was the greatest thing in wrestling. You know, we all know how the fans could be played. But right away they're saying, well, he can't pick the dog. The dog's going to turn on him. He's going to be in the ring with three opponents. And, you know, how can they coexist together? But they did. And they won the title. Vern, of course, put the title on him and dog for a year. And uh, it was magic. 
It was absolute magic. So I have a, a two-part question. First of all, do you know who the referee was for this match? It's a smaller guy that I don't. It's Marty not Miller. Marty Miller. Marty Miller. Okay. Marty that's, Miller. Yeah. That's the first question. Second question is, you know, Vern was on top for so long, and of course, he obviously had legitimate uh, amateur uh, credentials and athletic uh, credentials and such. But you know. Uh, before I get to Vern and the question I was going to ask, you know, you see guys now like Chris Jericho and Barry and I have talked about how, you know, uh, that at some point Chris has started to look old. It happened to Flair when Flair was in the WWE. You started seeing where he was getting old. Did the fans of the AWA at some point, even with the appreciation of how great Vern had been for so long, was there a point you feel as a longtime fan where the fans were like, Ah, you know, Vern's looking kind of old. Did that ever happen to Vern? Well, yes, actually, but I, let me explain it this way to you. I wasn't one of those people that thought Vern got old looking. I was one of those that saw Vern. I could I could see that he had slowed down, shall we say. I mean, obviously, when he's in his 50s, he was, you know, not the whirlwind he'd been in 1960. Because he, you had to see him in 1960 or 55 or 65 because he was, he was a high flyer. He was a whirlwind in the ring. There was constant movement, but yeah, he slowed down. But the key thing was, is I think it was the newer fans that were coming on board. By the time 1980 rolled around and, and Vern put the title on himself for the last time in 1980, he did that on purpose. You know, and again, guys, this is genius promoting. You just need to understand the background. Vern Gagne, especially in Minnesota, he was hierarchy here. Vern Gagne was as noted and known in Minnesota as um, Hubert Humphrey, as Harmon Killebrew, as any of the, you know, Fran Tarkenton from the Vikings, any of the notables, the, 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 the governors. Vern was that well known and he could draw that type of, you know, he comes into a room and the room sees him and they want to talk to him. And he had the real credentials. Let's never take that away from him. He was a wrestler first and a showman second. And he believed in wrestling first. When he put the title on himself for the last time, yeah, it was ego. But let me explain it to you this way. He put it on himself with the idea that he was going to write a story. And it, when you look at it in this concept, it was one of the, it was a made for TV movie. Here you have this aging champion when he takes the title from Nick in June of 1980 and he goes until May of 1981. During that, uh, nine months or I'm sorry, 10, 11, 12 months. He made it clear every time on an interview that he's going to retire if he is beaten for the title. He gets to that last showdown with Nick Bockwinkel, and he made it clear that on that day, I am retiring, win or lose, I am retiring, but I'd like to go out as champion. No one's ever done it, he says, which we know in wrestling isn't true, but it was for him. And when, when they put that day together, the governor of Minnesota declared it Vern Gagne Day. There was a proclamation. At ringside, Vern Gagne had all of his 
his uh, cronies. He had Bud Grant from the Vikings there, one of his buddies. He had Leo Namalini, the great football former gopher and San Francisco uh, football player and wrestler. He had the governor of Minnesota, uh, Al Qui was the governor at the time. Um, he had uh, Billy Bye, Rudy Boswich, which was which was a, a, an owner of Plywood, Minnesota. He had a bunch of his other friends there, and plus he had on hand most of the wrestlers that were in the territory at the time: Larry Hennig and Kurt Hennig and Greg and Jim Brunzel and uh, the Crusher and all of these guys. And he was going to go out as world champion. And when he did, there, there, I, I tell you this, there wasn't a fan there, and it was 21,000 strong at the St. Paul Civic Center, which was a sellout for that, that venue. There wasn't a fan there that didn't want to see him do it. Because they, you know, Bachwinkle played that ultimate heel and throw Heenan in for, for, you know, good measure. Vern had to win that. And that's where that storybook came, that you've got this aging champion who wants to go out as a champ, and when he did, it was the end of an era. It was played out like royalty that day, and I got goosebumps. I mean, we all understood it was going to happen that way, but it it was real. It was like watching a a movie. And was Vern the same Vern Gagne from 10 or 15 years earlier? No. But with Nick, they worked so well together. They had a chemistry. And you know, Nick, he was, a, he was a company man. He was Vern's friend. Whatever Vern asked him to do, he would do it. And that's what made Nick a perfect champion. Because Nick, I swear to you guys, he never had the ego that I'm the champ. You're not going to take it off of me. Or I'm not going to lose to this guy or I won't put this guy over. Nick never did that. He came in. He said, Vern, I'm your employee. And I will do whatever you ask me to do, and I will do it to the best of my ability. And he did. Um, I don't know if you guys know this or not, and shut me up anytime you get tired of listening. But when Nick Bockwinkle came here in 1971, he was brought here by Vern and Wally specifically. And Vern had intended to put the title on Nick in either late 71 or 72. He was going to, because Vern was just slowing down a little bit. He wasn't wrestling as much. And this would have this would have been a way for him to stay, you know, in the limelight and not put the title on the line. But what happened in July of 71 was when Hercules Cortez was killed. And the AWA had to do an immediate shuffle. Because on the night, the day of the night that, uh, or the night of the day that Hercules was killed, Hercules and Nick were in a winner-meets-the-champion match. Both were undefeated. And the idea was is that Vern was going to use that as a build-up to put the title on Nick. Hercules was killed, and that night the card went on, but Vern said, I will wrestle Nick in a non-title match. Well, what happened was is that Ray Stevens had also made his debut that night. and. Nick lost, or Nick put uh, the sleeper, huh, George, Vern put the sleeper on Nick, had it on him. Ray Stevens got up on the ring apron and said, he's putting a chokehold on, it's a chokehold. And Vern slapped Stevens off the ring apron, 
Nick rolled Vern up in a pin, one, two, three. He'd beaten the champion. But what really happened there was Vern saw the power in Ray Stevens, and he had to come up with new tag champs because Bastine, though short-term with Cortez as champions, Bastine picked Crusher, and there was the rub because Crusher didn't want the title. And he told Vern, he says, I'll, I'll work with Red, but I, I don't want this to go on forever. So Vern put the title on Nick and Ray. They were magic. They could, he could start having Nick and Ray defend the title and Vern didn't have to wrestle that much and he wrestled less and less until 75 when he put the title on Nick, but it was originally going to happen earlier. Uh, George, let me, let me, before Barry goes to his next question, ask you, uh, since you brought up Hercules Cortez, and maybe that's a name that sort of time uh, has begun to forget in some ways, but I can remember reading the magazines uh, about the incident that uh, led to the loss of his life. Tell the folks, let, let's go to the College of Wrestling Knowledge here. Tell the folks about Hercules Cortez. Well, Hercules Cortez had been in the AWA in 1971 for uh, – he had come in in late 70. He had returned, and he had been here in 1963. So we're talking almost a decade earlier. But Cortez wrestled all over the country. I mean, if you, you, and sometimes you have to look at results and pick out different names, but a lot of names that he used, Hercules Cortez being probably the primary, but he also wrestled as Hercules Romero. He was Raul uh, Romero. Uh, he wrestled as Pepe Chicaro. Um, well, there might be another one in there. Uh, but he, he and Vern had been friends. Vern brought him back in. And when he brought him in, the Vashon brothers had given their notice to Vern, Mad Dog and Butcher, that they wanted to lose the tag team title because Butcher was going to be going up to Montreal where he was going to be involved in the Grand Prix wrestling promotion. He was going to be, you know, part of the promotion. And in fact, he owned some of it. So him and dog were going to go up there. So he, they told Vern they wanted to have the title taken off of him. So Vern hooked Red Bastine up with Hercules Cortez. And that's how they became champions. They were extremely over. Very different ring styles. Cortez was big for fans that could, you know, seen pictures. He was a muscular dude. He was big. He wasn't by any means a high flyer. He was uh, very charismatic in his own way. And Red Bastine being the high flyer. And, uh, you know, they just blended well together. And the intent was is that they would be champions for a while after the dog and butcher lost the titles to him. But it was only two months. And because they they won the title in May, May 15th, to be exact, and uh, ended up, you know, Cortez was killed the morning of July 24th of 71. That evening was that match he was supposed to have with Nick Bockwinkle, and history was changed. And then Red Bastine told me later, too, he said that after Hercules was killed, he said that he, he said personally it was such a loss because of how it happened. Um, they were coming back from Saint, or they were coming back from Winnipeg, Canada, where they had wrestled on the 23rd. And in the morning hours of the 24th, coming back, they were on, uh, 35E in Minnesota, coming through St. Cloud. Hercules fell asleep at the wheel and, uh, the car overturned and, uh, 
Hercules was killed. And Red, he he ended up with a really serious knee injury, he got tossed under the dash, uh, so to speak. And he said that uh, he had told Vern that he was probably going to take some time off. So he did. He had like a month and a half, two months off. And then they hooked him up with Crusher, you know, who's going to, they didn't want to take the title from him because Kurt Cortez was killed. So they put Crusher in there. But Crusher told Vern, I, I will do this, but short term. So they ended up dropping it right at the beginning of January of 72 to Nick and Ray, who were just box office. And that, that's really what happened. So we've, we've talked about Billy Robinson previously, and I've mentioned to you that I was, Billy is my all time favorite wrestler. I always kind of preferred wrestling as opposed to brawling. And I think you're, you're in the same, the same group. I know that you're not a fan of blood, uh, in matches and things like that. Was there ever any true consideration to giving the strap to Robinson? And I know that it's been talked about and things, but is it just conjecture or was there a plan at one point to maybe give the title to Billy Robinson? From every account that I've ever heard, and I, the last person I heard it from, which I'm going to take as being credible, is Greg Gagne himself. And no, there wasn't. It isn't that Vern wouldn't have wanted to put it on him. It still goes back to the fact that Vern honestly did not feel he could trust Billy to, on whatever promotional type thing Vern wanted to do to drop the belt, that he could get Billy to do it if Billy didn't respect or agree with his opponent. And that goes back to what we just talked about a few minutes ago is Billy Robinson, as good as he was, as great as he was, and I had nothing but respect for him. I loved his matches. I loved everything about him. But I have, I can't tell you, I, I'd lose track of fingers and toes counting the number of guys that said going in the ring with Billy was torture because we, we just had to do everything his way or he would not work with us. And the sad part is, is that Billy could put on such a beautiful match. It, he was so fluid. Everything just looked so natural. It progressed. It made sense. Every move he made. And that's why he had to have guys like Nick Bockwinkle. You know, when, when Billy was in a match with a guy like, uh, Jack Lanza, I thought he had trouble because Jack was different to work with, you know. Billy really had to work to make Jack look better. And that's nothing against Jack Lanza, who was a good worker. But Billy just, no, Vern was not going to do it. Because, you know, if you look at uh, when Vern went to Nick in 1980 and said, I'm going to take the strap off you and put it on me for a while, Nick says, fine. When when Vern went to uh to Nick, he went to Nick and said, we're going to put the title on Otto Vance and work out an angle here out of nowhere. Who the hell is Otto Vance? But Vern had worked out a, a money deal with Otto, and Otto wanted to be champion, so he's going to buy it for a few months. And Nick said, yeah, okay, whatever. Nick went along with it. And Billy would never have done that. If Vern would have come up and said, you know, I want to put the title on Joe Schmo tonight, Billy would probably, I don't think so. And, you know, we can look at a guy like Stan Hansen. I know we're going off the rail here a bit, but 
That, that never happens to us, George. That was the problem with Stan Hansen because Stan was going to do everything his way, and Vern was warned, don't put the title on him. Nick Bockwinkel and Jack Lanza, bringing that name up again, they both told Vern, don't put the title on Stan. You're going to have a guy that won't you know, cooperate with you. Well, we know that happened. What Vern did after he... And, and boy, guys, there's stories on how this all took place, but Stan was making the primary, his primary living working for, uh, Shohei Baba, Giant Baba in Japan. And that was lucrative for him. And that was his first, his first love. And when Vern worked out the deal with him to put the title on him, he worked it out with Baba that Stan could still work Japan dates. But what happened was, is, Stan was telling Vern, I'm not going to work this date. I'm not going to be here these months. I'm not going to do this. And Vern finally just said, you know what? We're going to, on the night in Denver, he told Nick, tonight you're going to take the title off of Stan. They pulled Stan aside, and it was, naturally, he was blindsided because Stan didn't have, you know, early warning of this. But he told, Nick, Vern told him, I'm taking the title off of you tonight because you're heading off to Japan for the next eight weeks. And Stan said, no way, it ain't happening. Vern says, yes, it is. And I mean, they almost went to it in the dressing room, the locker room. For what it's worth, guys, as tough a dude as I think Stan Hansen was, I honestly, oh, my God. I honestly believe that um, if Stan would have gotten in Vern's face, I'm thinking Vern would have probably decked him and probably won out. But. Stan left the building, not doing the match, took the belt with him. Nick was there. The the champion wasn't. Vern had to do it on the come there, and he had to say, you know, i got to come up with something here because i got an auditorium full of people. So he said Nick is declared champion by default. Popular decision? No. But he made up for it. So anyway, with, with the Stan Hansen thing, you know, that was the example. And I don't think Billy Robinson was going to get the title for that reason because Billy was not a cooperative guy. And Barry, you know, I know you tell me he's your favorite. And, and like I say, I have nothing against him as a wrestler. Sure. But up here, uh, I don't know what power he would have or would have not had anywhere else. But since he was an employee of Vern's from 1970, what, 1970 through the end of his career, he wasn't always the most pleasing guy to be around. So, Georgia, I know that you and I have discussed Billy Robinson off air. I know that he had a reputation for being dour. Uh, it can be very curt. You know, he was, he wasn't the most pleasant guy, as you said, outside the ring, which I get. One, and, and I only saw one example of that as a kid, though I got to say he was always great to me, but I did see one example and he, he just appeared to have little patience for people at times. But one of the things I remember reading after Billy had passed, and I believe it was in a, the observer obit on him was that he was never a draw across the country or the world. I, and I don't know about England, so I'll, I'll leave that. But in the AWA, I guess he wasn't considered a guy that was going to sell tickets and that that had been a knock on him, I guess, throughout his career. When I saw him in Florida, and I think I'm way too young to, you know, know if he was a draw or not, but again, his style of wrestling I loved. 
So I guess my question to you is, was Robinson a draw? Is Meltzer possibly incorrect? And secondly, looking at Billy, and, and I know that I, you and I go back to the WFIA days when I was a kid and you were just a little bit older, George, but not tremendously. But we were actually at a convention and it might have been Atlanta when Vern actually won the world title back from, from Bockwinkle. I don't know if it was Atlanta, if it was Memphis or even Knoxville. You mean he won the title while you, while the convention was well, going on? Yeah, and we were there because I actually went up to you and I, I think it had maybe occurred the night before. And, uh, I remember that this was a top, a big topic of conversation, but Billy also, and I believe it was 1979 or 80, Billy was made the essentially world champion of the CWA, which was what they were running out of Memphis. And I just recently had listened to Jim Cornette talk about that. And what Cornette basically said was they were trying to give the title, which they had created and give it some gravitas. And they had given it to superstar Billy Graham. And then they had given it to Robinson. Do you, so I guess my question is going to be a two-parter. Would Robinson, if Vern had decided to make him a world champion, the AWA champion, would Robinson, in your opinion, have sold tickets and been successful in that role? And then what do you think the mindset was in making him the world champion in Memphis where he's got literally, you know, he doesn't have much of a following. His style is, I'm going to say, a 180 from what they're doing in Memphis. So twofold. First, the AWA and then Memphis. Your thoughts? Well, let's let's talk about the AWA first. You know, you asked me a little bit ago if I if I thought Vern had ever considered putting the title on Billy, and I told you the reasons they weren't going to do it. But the other side of the coin is, and this is where Vern's ego played in this. Vern did not like having a babyface champion unless it was him. There was a, there was a huge ego in play here. Vern never wanted anyone perceived to be more popular or better than him as, as we called it in those days, a scientific good guy wrestler. So that was part of it, too, with Billy. Now, whether or not Billy could draw fans, Vern, Vern had charisma. If you saw him in his day, Billy didn't. Billy was drier. His interviews, he, he, I didn't, you know, I saw everybody and anybody in the business I do interviews. I didn't see Billy as being one of the better interview guys that was convincing to, to make you want to run out to the box office. But the other side of it is, is if Billy had been AWA champion, I think the perception was, and at least it was for me, that Billy was so good. Who is going to be believable to beat him? I think you got to ask that question. And there isn't a challenger they could have come up with that could be believable to be able to pin Billy, make Billy submit, or somehow win the title. Whereas as the challenger, and of course most of his tenor, he had great matches with Vern Gagne, by the way. Billy and Vern wrestled a number of times. and. In those matches, Vern would always play what I call the subtle heel, where he'd do the slap in the face to Billy and kind of irritate him a little bit, you know. And But 
Billy would not draw fans, I think, just because of his lack of personality. He, he didn't have it. And yet he was probably the best guy in this doggone business during the 70s, or at least very close to the top. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. It it does, too. It, but and then, it, you know, I want to oh, just please. say on that Memphis thing you're talking about, really, I think, Barry, what that was is that Billy left the AWA just for a while. It was one of those things where Vern would do like, you know, just take some time off. You come back, you're invigorated. The fans are, you get some new fans. The fans are great, you know, happy to see your return. And so for Billy, it was a vacation more than anything. Putting the title on him as they did, I, I agree, that was kind of out of nowhere because he, his style certainly didn't gel with anything that Memphis promoted back in that day. So it probably was just making him look good. I don't know. Now, who knows? I don't know this, but maybe Vern had something to do with it. Give him a title for a little bit. So I have kind of a three-part question for you, George, all regarding Vern. First, first question did, you know, we, we talked about the, uh, the deterioration, if you will, physically. And, and I'm, you know, I'm not talking about like he suddenly overnight looked horrible, but you know, he was getting older. The body was starting to change and stuff like that. Did the fans ever turn on Vern at any point? Second question. Did the fans know that Vern, I mean, no, we had Stanley Blackburn out there as the president of the AWA. You had Wally Carbo as the, the promoter. Did the fans actually know that Vern owned the territory? And the last part, who do you think, in your estimation, George Shire was a better opponent for Vern, Billy Robinson, or Nick Bockwinkle? Who did you personally like better? Well, I'll answer the last question first, Nick Bockwinkle. Okay. I thought Vern, I thought Vern and Nick were the perfect opposites of one another because in Nick you had a guy that the perception was and the reality was is that he could wrestle. Nick was well trained. You know, Wick Nick could shoot when he needed to. He knew enough to be able to defend himself if anybody tried to get cute with him, you know, and say, I'm gonna test this guy out. Nick had that much to do. And Vern Truthfully, Vern liked Nick. So, you know, it, it's that chemistry thing, uh, Barry. They, they had a good chemistry together and their matches showed it. And that, that really was the deal with, with Robinson and Nick as well, because as Nick said, though I would give Billy the, the kudos, you know, what do you want to do or what are we going to do tonight? Just giving Billy that much respect made their matches so good that every, and, and I, you know, you could go on paper and you could say, oh my God, Nick is defending the title to Billy again. Oh my God, he's got Billy again. Well, we never did that in the AWA because Billy was always the top challenger. You know, he was always considered to be the one guy that fans believed could beat Nick Bockwinkle if it wasn't Vern Gagne. They, they believed that. Now, as far as, as, the fans knowing whether Vern was really the owner of the company? Uh, no, not during the 60s, the 70s. It wasn't until like the very early 80s that that started to, you know, because wrestling had opened up by then. The dirt sheets were out. 
Um, it was more open that Vern secretly, you know, was the owner of the AWA. But from the get go in 1960, or it was actually 1959 when Vern and Wally Carbo bought the Minneapolis territory, which was what the AWA home office was. Vern, of course, was really the owner, but they were 50-50 partners in the beginning. Vern and Wally were. And Wally was the front man. He was the promoter. He was the stumbling bumbler. He was so good at what he did. And he uh, he was the front man, and nobody ever knew that Vern was secretly pulling the strings behind uh, the scenes. And it, so it worked. Now, did I cover all your questions? Or no, the, the last one was, do you think that the fans, uh, uh, you know, oh. as as the business was sort of, as you just uh, mentioned, started to get more exposed to the general public, did you see, not all the fans, of course, because he was a legendary figure in your area, but was there any segment of the audience that slowly began to turn on him? The segment of the audience that turned on him, if you want to call it that, was the newer fans. When when the late, very late 70s, very early 80s came around, um, I had had a conversation with my friend Jim Melby. Jim and I used to go to, did you know Jim Barry? I did, sure. Okay. Jim and I used to go to the matches together. And we we had done this for over a decade and a half. And during the very early 80s, when wrestling in the AWA was drawing so well with Hogan and Ventura and the Sheiks and Jerry Blackwell, and, uh, you know, the, the list goes on. And wrestling around the country was surging. It just seemed like for whatever reason. But the, the deal was is that it was, it was new fans coming in. Jim and I came home one time, and the Civic Center, the St. Paul Civic Center, had been sold out. We both talked how we we were not enjoying it as much because the the fan base was different. And the difference was is that they were younger. The, the teenagers were starting to come on and catch hold of wrestling when Jesse Ventura was here and Hulk Hogan was here. And those are the fans that turned on a guy like Vern Gagne. They immediately, he's old. Well, you know, against Hulk Hogan, of course he looks old. I mean, it was crazy. It was that younger generation, and they did not want to buy into Vern Gagne. They were the biggest distract detractors when Vern put the title on himself in 1980 because he's old. He's not cool. He's not cool. It was a new fan base, and by the time we got to 82, 83, 84, a lot of my generation had started to fall off. And, you know, then the business, it, I mean, it went crazy. We had wrestling in the Twin Cities. We had WWF cards. We had uh, Mid-South cards coming in here. We had talent from all over. The younger generation bought into it differently. And then that's, like I said, the dirt sheets were out there. The fans were yelling the results of the match before they took place or the angle that was going to take place. And, you know, that's just the way it was. So Vern was old for that reason, and he took heat for it. Gotcha. So to me, that's interesting, too, because I think if you go back to the territory days, 
and I maybe the demarcation line would be 1980, right? That seems like a good point. Yep. In the <laughs> 70s, right, in the 60s, a lot of the territories had that one older guy. And the guy was usually near the top. You know, Eddie Graham in Florida. Throughout the uh, the 1960s, even into the early 70s, Jack Briscoe, prior to Dusty, was recognized as the top babyface, then Dusty. But even in, you know, 77 or 78, Eddie Graham would, would come out and, you know, work a main event, you know, whether it's the team with Mike or Dusty or something, still got over absolutely huge with the crowd. So there was never an instance where anybody was ever turning on on Eddie, at least that I recall. But I will say, I want to say Eddie's last angle might have been 82, maybe 83. And I think it was apparent at that stage that, uh, you know, his his day had come. So. I know that uh, George, we have definitely monopolized monopolized a lot of your time, but looking I'm into the, it, and, and so are we. The truth is, the chance to talk with you about the history of pro wrestling is absolutely huge. Looking into the 1980s and the changes that occurred, you had gone from Vern Gagne and Bockwinkle, and all of a sudden, you're, we're seeing in a territory that really didn't change its world title <laughs> too frequently. All of a sudden, we're seeing guys like Otto Vons, Rick Martell, Jumbo Sharuda, Stan Hansen, Larry Zabisco. They're all getting a run with the world title. Removing Bachwinkle and removing Ganya, in your opinion, who is your favorite AWA World's Heavyweight Champion? Well, I, I have to – I liked Nick Bachwinkle as champion. Because I, I thought for all the things we've talked about, he epitomized in my eyes what a, what a world champion should be. You know, I, I'm really old school when I come to this because I always felt that to make wrestling legit or appear to be legit, you know, they, they died by the fact that wrestling was real. And to me, if you're going to be a challenger, and you're, you're out there week after week telling the fans that you, you want to get a title match and you're going to win the world title. When you do win the world title, my logic says that you have to win it and then defend it for a long period of time to make it seem legit. But if you win it tonight and lose it two weeks to the next guy or lose it back and then win it back, there's no supremacy there. There's no, there's no proving you're better. So the way I would have promoted, as weird as this sounds, um, and even though I think this was a little bit too long, but Bruno San Martino holding the, uh, WWF title for close to eight years. The fans believed that he was good. They saw him win, 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 win. When he finally lost, that was huge. That meant something. And people said, well, what about Vern and his last, well, his second to last title reign? He held the title from 68. Well, actually, it's weird. He won it back from Mad Dog in 67. And a year later, he dropped it for two weeks to Dr. X, Dick Beyer. And then he won it back. But from that time in August of 68, 
to November of 75 when he dropped it to Nick, he had held, he had won, you know, held the title for seven years. That was too long. So you go back to look at the NWA formula. Uh, typically their champion was two, three years for the most part with some rare exceptions. And we're talking pre-Rick Flair. Okay. And it really meant something when you held the title and you defended the title, but you could cheapen it so much. And that's why today's wrestling, I mean, everybody is a 37 time champion. I don't know what the hell that means. That means that means you lost 37 times. Why would you broadcast your losses? So in the sense of uh, longevity, I think it made sense to hold the title because that means you had reached the top. Now you got to prove it's harder to be champion than to get to the championship. Does that make sense? It does. It does. So let me ask you, uh, you know, getting back to this match uh, that we're talking about here again from February 10th, uh, 1979 with Vern against Nick Bockwinkle. So, of course, you got uh, Bobby Re- uh, Bobby Heenan at ringside. And, you know, we talked about how you preferred the uh, the wrestling style as opposed to a brawl. How often and I and I realize I'm asking this question. It's not like you were able to go out to all the different spot shows and all that. How often was Bobby was was Bobby bleeding? Was it like a regular occurrence? No. No. Vern was not a fan of regular blood. Let's put it that way. Um, I have made, you know, you mentioned earlier that I, I've said I don't care for, I didn't care for blood matches. I liked them when they meant something, but I've, I've used the Sheik and Abdullah the Butcher. I'm talking Ed Farhat now, the Sheik. I've used those guys as examples I don't know as a fan that I would go there week after week after week and see the guy bleeding all over the doggone ring in the auditorium. I mean, to me, there, that doesn't make sense. And, and, and especially wanna, in, a, in a match that lasts less than five minutes. Too. Exactly. And, and why do I want to, to go to a slaughterhouse every week? With Vern, his, his primary bleeders, of course, were Heenan and the Crusher. Wahoo McDaniel, when he was here, he, he could do a good blade job. And Mad Dog, when he would do it. But Vern did not use it. You may see blood in a town once or maybe twice a year. But when it happened, there was a reason for it. It, it, it wasn't just five minutes into the match and Bobby Heenan's bleeding all over the place. No, no. It would it would have been a blow off match where Heenan may have been you know bloody, uh, or maybe Nick as champion would do it. But it, it was it wasn't uh, Vern did, was not a proponent of it. It just didn't work. Yeah, you know uh, Barry's mentioned before that Jack Briscoe famously did not bleed. Uh, it was just like part of who he was as a wrestler. Vern, uh, did he ever bleed? I, I don't remember seeing any photos in the magazines of a bloody Vern. We, we've talked about that over the years and I can only come up with one match that I remember that he drew a little bit of blood, uh, back in 1961. It was a cage match against Gene Kaniski and it was sort of the, the climax to their feud and the two of them, Gene, uh, Vern had a lot of respect for Gene and, um, that was the only time I can remember. 
uh, Vern, like I say, he didn't he didn't go out and tell his guys, I want blood tonight. He just didn't do it. And, you know, you had to understand Vern Gagne. He, he legitimately believed that I'll provide wrestling first and gimmick second. He had the, he had the legit wrestlers. He had the gimmick wrestlers, but he would prefer to have, you know, some actual contests. And when fans were able to see Vern Gagne, uh, Vern never drew really well when he wrestled baby faces because I think it was, he, he didn't want to put them on because he was afraid that the, the baby face would get more cheers. He was paranoid about that, but and there were times when he did. Bill Watts, Bill Watts wrestled uh, Vern like four times in 1969 in every AWA town, and they were spread out over the course of the year, not four matches in a row. They they spread it out, and in each match, Vern he 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 got the booze. They wanted Bill Watts to win, which is weird because Bill could be such a great villain or a heel if he'd if they'd have turned him or made him heal because he was a natural. But uh against Vern, he he got Vern got booze. Are, are you trying are you, are you trying to say Bill Watts might have been a natural asshole, George? Is that what you're saying? No, I'm not. <laughs> just, hey, he, he was he was always uh Bill Watts was always very nice to me. I I, I get all kinds of stories. I I think Vern Gagne, Billy I think Vern Gagne, Bill Watts, Roy Shire and Eddie Graham, um, and strangely enough, I'd even put Ole Anderson in that group. I think they are, you know, five of the greatest masterminds in this business. That and and if you knew them personally, their personalities in a lot of ways were the same. Some of them had that my way or the highway attitude, but they ran good promotions. They they knew how to promote angles and put on cards that made sense, and uh, you know for for that they're criticized by by those that don't understand. Let's put it that way. So in the so match, match, one of the things that you notice is, is how incredibly how over Vern's Vern sleeper hold. Oh yeah, you know the the deal is, guys. This is this is the major thing. When you watch wrestling today, and I don't follow it, but my God, I see guys coming off the ring, falling on the floor, going through tables, being hit with ladders, chairs, bouncing off of, you know, you name it, and and all kinds of slams and pounds and pushes, and they're still walking. Well, you know, I come from an era when you had Vern Gagne in the ring and you had some moves, counter moves. You know, could you imagine doing a rest hold today for 10 minutes, working on an arm or a shoulder and the fans would boo him out of the building. They they couldn't sit through it because the, the action is what they want. But when you had Vern Gagne, when he got to that point, and in his whirlwind days, he would run to the ropes, come up with a drop kick. The guy would go down. He'd get up. The guy, Vern, would give him another drop kick. He'd always do a third drop kick, and then he'd clamp that sleeper on. The match was over. Everybody knew it. That's what made Vern and his era of wrestling so real, because the fans could know what it meant. Today, 
They'll put a sleeper hold on a guy. They'll put a figure four leg lock on a guy. They'll do ten backbreakers and through a table, and they still can't beat them. That's just a transition move today. It, it is. It is. Um, you know, the figure four leg lock. Boy, you know, in, in my era, you know, uh, Dick Byer used it. Billy Red Lions used it. Johnny Powers used it. Buddy Rogers used it. Reggie Parks used it. And every one of those guys, when they got to the figure four leg lock, it was real. The match was over. You, you don't put the, you don't put the finishing hold on unless it's going to mean something. Promos. So, George, in our Facebook group, uh, Breaking KFAB with Bowdrin and Barry, uh, and as we say, Barry. If you're not a member of our Facebook group, the question we ask, why not? Yeah, it's what's wrong with you? It's just an extension of the show, exactly. Exactly. We're doing a poll, and I think we all know how painful those can be, uh, of who the greatest promo guy was eh, for the most part of the last 50 years or so, uh, not going too, too in the Wayback Machine. So if I was to ask you, George Shire, who was the best promo guy you ever saw in the AWA? Who you got? You know, my list, okay, first of all, my list is so doggone long because there were so many good ones. But I guess what I would do is if we did it on a consistent interview by interview by interview basis, ongoing, I would go with Bobby, Bobby Heenan. Okay. He is, in fact, in the tournament, so thank you for that choice. So, George, last week we had a discussion uh, about the uh, unfortunate passing of uh, superstar Billy Graham, and uh, I wanted to get your thoughts. Uh, we did sort of a tribute show last week uh, in our episode last week to superstar Billy Graham, and I know he had a run in the mid-'70s in the AWA with, uh, amongst uh, others, Wahoo McDaniel and such. Uh, some memories real quickly of superstar Billy Graham in the AWA. You know, I want to just answer it this way to you. Uh, since Billy passed, there's been a lot of shows done. There's been tributes done. You guys, you nailed it. You did the best. Well, you know, hey, Barry, hey, there, there, there are other shows. I don't know if you know this on the Arcadian Vanguard Network that uh, apparently claim that they've done the best Superstar Billy Graham tribute, uh, you know, but uh, we all have our, uh, our own opinions. Uh, you know, Barry, uh, you know. I think ours was the best. Barry, what do you think? I think ours was the best. And I'll tell you what, when you've got a wrestling historian like George Shire proclaiming your tribute the best, that's like gold to me, Jeff. You know, all I'm going to say is, uh, you know, our show consistently, consistently, and we don't, you know, have these, these people that claim to be Billy Graham historians or maybe shot Billy Graham from ringside, maybe in the Miami Beach Convention Center, but that's another story for another time. George, your mm -hmm. memories of superstar Billy Graham in the AWA. When I speak about wrestling, if I don't speak fact, I don't speak at all. And uh, Billy Graham in the AWA was the first of an era of a character who far exceeded anything that the AWA had seen up to that point. And he took it to new levels. But I will tell you this, guys. In hindsight, he was much like Hulk Hogan. He was a guy that Vern was never going to take to the top and give him the title. How's that? All right, Barry, about ready to turn the corner head for home. Before we do, I have a couple things I'd like to mention. First of all, uh, I'm just going to say that uh, maybe George Shire mentioned this, but uh, for all those wondering, yes, 
I think we did do the best superstar Billy Graham a tribute show anywhere, anywhere, Barry. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to make it exclusive, but I'm just going to say that uh, on my own. So Barry, I know you like a good food question. I'm going to throw this. I'm going to, Jeff, I'm going to, I'm just going to twist that just a little bit. You know, I learned this uh, many years ago when you have to tell people that you're the best. Is that what I just did? Well, it, I think I, I think we're we're taking shots at other people. <laughs> I think if anything, I think that's. I'm not taking a shot at you. I'm just. But when it's you not have, a stiff shot. It's more like a sully shot to the. It court. is. It's a yeah. look. It's a. It's a. It's a lucha shot for the most part. You know, this is we're we're tossing softballs. But the old adage, when you do have to tell people how great you are. Are you great? I don't know. But yeah, so go ahead. You have a food question, Jeff. I got to tell you, I, I'm, uh, you know, this is, uh, three days before Fan Fest. I am, we're recording this a few days before Fan Fest. I am getting ready to get in the car in, uh, I don't know, about 36 hours or so and, uh, begin my trek down to Florida. And you know that my laundry list, it's like, and I'm the lovely Linda, my girlfriend will be joining me. We'll be headed down there, but Linda's like, so what are we going to do? And, of course, I give her a list of, like, 15 restaurants. And she looks at it and goes, okay, what else are we going to do besides eating? I'm like, what? We're going to go to the beach. That's it, right? So I have made a list of places I will be eating in Florida, Jeff, and I'm super fucking excited about so that. So when everyone shows up at a fan fest, you will notice a slightly portly Barry Rose. Uh, More to love. So. Yeah, absolutely. Love handles. Give them a squeeze. Barry loves when you do that. So my food-related question, it's a very quick one, Barry. (laughs) The other day, the sainted Mrs. Bowdrin made for us here at the Bowdrin household Rice uh, rice crispy treats. Barry Rose, are you a fan? Yay or nay? Rice oh crispy treats. Oh my god, treats. yes. And and it, it, don't trust anybody who's not. There's I don't. I've never met anybody who's not a fan. Okay, I'm just going to point out that uh, we had cut them up, uh, you know, into little squares, put them in the uh, the Ziploc bags, and uh, I mentioned to Kim. I said, Oh, uh, did you want me to uh, to give a couple of these to Andy because our son Andy was coming over one night to spend the night? I said, You want me to give some of these to Andy? And she looks at me just like dead eyed and goes. Uh, no, because <laughs> I want them for myself. Mrs. Boundron did not want to give up those Rice Krispie treats, by God. I to her, funny. to her own flesh and blood, that the, yes. the, to her, her son that she gave her birth. only born male son. Wow. Did not a- get the Rice Krispie treats because well, she, it- she like put her arms around and said, no, no, these Rice Krispie treats, they're for me. That's fucking awesome. And that is, uh, you know, that is, that is dedication and love, uh, of Rice Krispie treats. So let, let's take this just a little further. I don't know if you've ever tried them, but there are special crispy treats that make the rounds at FanFest. Oh, are, do those come from the southwest corner of the state? They certainly do. And, uh, they are fantastic. They are potent. Have you ever tried those or no? Uh, no, I probably made a point not to try them. I you would know, think, so, but yeah. I got so so removed. You have a nice that, restful sleep after you have those rice crispy treats. I got to tell you, one hundred percent is that is the Check. best sleep you'll ever have. Yeah. Uh, but with that, Jeff, I I love rice crispy treats. I love all forms of rice crispy treats, which mean fruity pebbles, cocoa pebbles, etc. Are you a fan of all of those? Uh, I, I never really got into the whole, uh, you know, fruity pebbles kind of thing. Uh, that was never, that was never my bag, baby. Yeah. 
So next, Barry, wanted to ask you, we occasionally uh, throw out that uh, we're on a certain TV show or a certain movie that we want to kind of put over. Barry Rose, I mentioned on my own Facebook page, the new show that I've just finished as we record this episode. Have you ever seen on Prime The Night Manager? I have not. And you have been raving about this show. Holy um, shit. Tom yeah. Hiddleston and Hugh Lowry. Apparently it came out a couple years ago. Uh, it was, uh, based on a book that was written, uh, by John Le Carrere, I think is how you pronounce it, who did a lot of like spy novels in the sixties and seventies. And, uh, wow. As I, uh, I told people that I, uh, I speak to about shows, this shows me Tom Hiddleston absolutely should be one of the guys considered for the role of James Bond. He was really good. And there may be, in fact, rumors going around that there's a second season because this one that I watched one season, six episodes, Bada boom, bada bing, you're in, you're out, and you're like, what the fuck did I just see? This is a really good show. Highly recommended. Barry, before I tell you my second one, anything you've been watching lately you want to recommend? Yeah, and I got to say, when you were recommending this, I did a quick Google search, and I want to say Linda also, uh, she saw your post, and she goes, maybe we should watch this show, and I said, I think we probably should, because it sounds pretty fucking unbelievable. So Linda and I, over the last few days, got into Yellow Jackets, which is a two-season, I think it's 20 episodes, it aired on Showtime that we're watching, and I think on Paramount+, Plus. and it is, I was telling you about this off-air, it's essentially Lord of the Flies. There is a plane carrying the girls' soccer team of a high school. They're going to the, I believe, national championship. The plane crashes, and for whatever reason, they are stuck out in the middle of the woods for 18 months. And uh, this show takes it about as far as they can take it. It's extreme at times. It is shocking at times. And I got to say, it's fucking great. And what channel is that on, Bear? I'm I'm watching on Paramount Plus currently. Okay. The other show that I want to mention, I have not yet finished. I'm actually only three episodes in, but I want to give a shout out to one of our dedicated longtime listeners, and that's our man Kevin Orcutt up in the Pacific Northwest. Kevin has been hounding me, Barry, relentlessly. Have you watched the show Mind Hunter? He keeps texting me and asking me, and I'm, you know, I'm like, I uh, haven't had a chance, hadn't had a chance. Well, because Kevin had had asked me again, I said, you know what? Let me just watch an episode, just so I can tell him that I watched an episode. I watched the first episode, and I was hooked. Watch the second episode, I was hooked. Watch the third episode, and I know you've seen this show, Barry, in its entirety. Holy shit! What a great show that's available on Netflix. It's Mindhunter, Barry. Yeah, this is – so I'm a couple of years removed. This was, I think, one of the first shows that I watched when I moved out, got divorced. And and maybe we do that, Jeff. Maybe as we approach episode 300, we spend a few minutes to talk about shit that we went through over the last six years in doing 300 episodes. But Mindhunters was one of the first TV shows that I sat and I watched – and I was blown away. And essentially, it's the formation of the FBI task force for serial killers. And uh, it's understanding what gets in a serial killer's mind. I thought the acting was great. I thought the storyline was great. Everything about this show spoke to me. And there were two seasons, and I believe COVID hit, and they never got around. But I think I was reading, Jeff, there will be a season three at some point. Uh, actually, I believe Kevin told me that they are, uh, perhaps 
it, it, I think he said it was a financial issue and that the episodes were too expensive to film or the show was too expensive to film, something like that. Let me uh, pull up. I want to just give the person credit because I'm going to talk about the actor. And that is the job that was done. Hold on one second. Uh, by uh, actor Cameron Britton, who plays the role of uh, Ed, what's the guy's name? Ed. Um, do you remember Barry? Shit, it, 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 oh, don't think about. Oh, it. I'm sorry, Ed Kemper. Ed, Ke- that's it. And Ed Kemper was like one of the first serial killers that they interviewed. They went to the the prison and they basically this guy started get, talking to him about things that were motivating him when he when he began killing. And I will tell you that the show is extremely graphic in some of its content. Some of the photos that they show are, quite frankly, a little bit disturbing, but completely compelling, completely fascinating. Thank you so much, Kevin, for mentioning this show to me and and uh, to keep pushing me to watch this show because apparently it's very well worth it. And I'm glad that I'm not, you know, in a position yet where I can just wrap up. I'm only three episodes in, but it's super compelling and highest recommendation along with The Night Manager, along with Yellow Jackets, three really good shows to definitely check out if you're looking for a new show to watch. On that note, once again, Barry, we want to thank Bill Alfonso for joining us. We want to thank our old friend George Shire for dropping a little College of Wrestling knowledge on us from the uh, the AWA and its history. Really good stuff as always. Uh, and we, uh, I'm just going to put it out there. We talked to George, and George has said uh, if we need him to come on a Patreon episode down the road. Because Barry, I don't know if you know this, we're going Patreon. Oh. <laughs> I don't know if we've mentioned that or not. George said he will come on a Patreon show, and perhaps we can take questions. But only from those people that are Patreon subscribers. Uh, you know, you got a question about Vern Gagne, Nick Bockwinkle, Bobby Heenan, AWA Wrestling History. In the future, George Shire will be there to answer. Well, Jeff, your this is another great thing also, too, is that, you know, we associate George as we, you know, we call him Mr. AWA. So we associate him with Midwest professional wrestling. But in reality, this guy is a wrestling historian. I think AWA is uh, certainly his you know, his field of expertise, if you will. But at the same in time, public. I bet you in public, if you will, I bet you could ask George uh, questions regarding wrestling going back to the 50s or 60s. Maybe George is a guy we get involved with this top 200 list. Maybe he could tell us. That's a George, very good idea. Yeah. Does Hack and Schmick deserve to be on this list? He George well, would be the know. guy. Either yeah. either George or Greg Good because you know Please saw him. Yeah. Greg was there live in public. That's true. That's true. Yeah, I think against yeah. Gotch. Yeah, so uh not Carl Frank. But on that note, I will say that on behalf of my co-host Barry Rose, on behalf of our producer Lou Kippelman, on behalf of Bill Alfonso and George Shire, I am Jeff Bowdern. Sometimes they call me the Booker. My boy Gunny. That see, you thought I was gonna forget. I absolutely did not. I love my boy Gunny, my beautiful boy. And I'd love to play that song, but that's another story for another time. On that note, Lou, take it home, my man. Until next time.